When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here at Tall Tales, we are committed to promoting diversity and supporting small businesses. Here's one we think you're going to love. Hi, uh, my name is Geraldine. I am the founder of Royalty Dancers, which is a dancing brand here in Dublin. We have heels dance classes covered like R&B, hip hop and Afro beats for beginners and all levels really. Royalty Dancers helps promote self-love, body confidence and self-worth in the new generation through dance. We just provide a safe space for everyone to just be themselves and be empowered. A space where they can tap into their inner self, their inner fierce, we say. You can find them on Instagram and YouTube at Royalty Dancers. That's R-O-Y-A-L-T Dancers. to listen to with Dr. Marie Cassidy and she's fucking amazing. She's in crab. She wrote a crab called Beyond the Tape that you can buy and that's why we interviewed her but she is a pathologist. She is the former state pathologist of this fair island. Huge balls. Oh my god yeah. And very interesting. And very like her whole outlook I just want to actually bottle it. Mm. Why like none of the people who should be life coaches are right. ever life coaches. I think that's because when you like do a life coach, you're like, I'm going to be a life coach. And then you study being a life coach. And then you're a life coach. But I don't know whether you should be required that to have quite a full life before you set down the road of life advisory. coaching. But I don't know. Maybe you do. I don't, I'm, I'm sure, sure you pick it up from listening. somewhere and picking it up from other people's experiences too. But it's yeah, and also there is. It is like you are learning it. You're learning some kind of method, all right. It's but like, too, but I like, think life coaches really sit with you and like extract what it is that you want to do. Yeah, they're good on analysis and yeah. action and stuff, rather than being like, "This is how I dealt with that very specific problem that you're having," because I've also had it. I like see. what I want Marie Cassidy, Doctor Marie Cassidy, to be now is potentially maybe like an Oprah for us. 
she mm. could be our leader she okay. cult <laughs> queen creep she's just oh my god yeah but i think no, and like no, no fucks i think she was too positive about the creeps like we have like category creep over here and she was very forgiving she was like people she bad was. people just yes, having actually. good people having good, bad days she was like murderers are just your average person having, having a, bad a bad day, day. so really quality. but that is kind of funny because now it's like don't she was saying not to be afraid of bad people that there aren't really that many bad people but like I think it's now that we need to be aware that everyone has the potential to be bad That's, so just well, don't you believe everyone. that everyone uh, anyway I, ch- I, ch- I try not to try not to think that everyone's bad but now I will Thank you, Dr. Marie Cassidy. <laughs> Enjoy the interview. It's oh, and she finally tells us what dead people smell like. Oh, yeah, that is good. I really like. And some tips on how chances. to deal with dead people. Frustratingly, though, she did flag, and I, we, the book reading. The, I read. I got a bit through the book before we interviewed her, but then I was watching interviews with her, and she keeps referring to like fourth-year students asking her the same question, which is the question we all wanted to ask her, which is, "What's the most disgusting thing you've ever seen?" But we couldn't ask because. Because she she hit us, she cut us off at the pass. But she tells us other. I mean, things. It, it just she did. She actually described you. She said, "Transition your boys." I want you to know this in my head. I was like, "There's Jen. That's Jen's us. gone. Sixteen-year-old boy, Joe Rogan, Jen Rogan over here." But that's I think the maggot thing. That, that was good, but that, it could have gone further south. I, I needed dripping like through the ceiling below. Okay, eighty-seven. <laughs> anyway, enjoy the, that interview. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, how come you decided like now to to do this deep dive back into your career like so you've had a long career in cutting up dead bodies yeah not so much emphasis on the long (laughs) 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 you could just have said a long career just you know (laughs) gloss over that well it's like everything in my life somebody asked me if I wanted to do it and I thought yeah why not I'll have a go and that was as simple as that I didn't have any deep desire. I hadn't been thinking about it for years and years and years. But I think when um, I announced that I was going to retire, suddenly people started to pop up out of the woodwork. And I just thought, well, you know, in my time of life, you just say yes to things and see where it goes. And, and I was quite upfront with them all. I said, look, this isn't my day job. I don't write for a living. I write reports, but that doesn't really count. Um, and I said, so if it's shit, just tell me. I said, I won't cry and sob and, you know, go and lock myself in a room because, as I say, that's, that wasn't, I've had a career. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. If this goes well, fine. If it doesn't go well, then you just say to me, bye-bye. Thank you for sending me in a few lines, but, you know, go back to the day job. And so I I just thought, I'll have a go. And they seemed to like it, so that was fine. Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, It's really enjoyable. And, like, for anybody listening who's thinking about dipping their toe into the into the kind of career as well it's a hugely eye-opening kind of because I think everybody well a lot of people have this idea of what it is uh, but actually in fact it, like what I'm thinking of is basically SUV not SUV CSI, CSI. Yeah. yeah like that's kind of the cultural touch points that I think most young-ish people might think of going into college or picking kind of careers for themselves so I mean it's not exactly that but it's not a million miles away. I liked how at the beginning you were like, okay, I'm just going to really uh, undo all the kind of uh, bad press that uh, has been put out there about what exactly a forensic pathologist is. And I'm just going to undo all of this like movie TV uh, narrative. But you were a consultant, weren't you, on um, Target? Target, yeah. Target, yeah. 
So you actually have been in the room with writers being like, okay, so just FYI, I don't interview living people. I am only with the dead. Yeah, but I think Taggart was quite good because they were in a privileged position because they actually filmed in our mortuary. Oh, no way. In so your they were actually, you know, work. we would give the place a little rub down because Taggart were coming in to do some filming. We'd say, Jackie, just, you know, get, you know, get rid of all the bloodstains before they arrive. Um, <laughs> but so they actually saw firsthand what we did. So they'd been in and they saw postmortems and they knew exactly, you know, what our role was. And to be fair with Taggart, they just, they never overstepped the mark with a pathologist. I mean, okay, they had a big fat guy with a beard and a moustache, but you know, apart from that, um, it was quite close to what we actually do. Um, so they, as, as I say, they were, they were in at the sort of the grassroots of forensic pathology, whereas other programs that came along have been heavily influenced by things like CSI and forensic science. So they've gone down that route and assumed that, you know, you can just pile all of that onto one person. I haven't a clue. I wouldn't do my way around a, a DNA lab. Um, yeah. It wouldn't let me in I, anyway. But uh, it makes it easier for their stories to run just to have one principal person who does all the clever stuff. I don't do anything clever. <laughs> I'm in a mortuary with a knife and that's about it. I loved how like ad hoc it all seems at times, like in the kind of in your early days when you're describing your first job and you went and like there was just some like real weird generic communal scrubs for you to put on. And I was like, oh, oh, my God, those scrubs must be like haunted. <laughs> and how did you feel like going in for your like first day on the job, as it were? Because like you seem to have a very like, oh, take it as it comes kind of attitude. Yeah. And I think that's probably stood me in good stead throughout my life because I don't get phased by things. Because I think the, you know, the people at Hache are keep on saying, you know, this is, this is really exciting. I'm going, yeah, I suppose it is. <laughs> I suppose it is. <laughs> if I was a real writer, I suppose this would be very exciting. I'm just going with the flow. Just tell me what to do, where, who to speak to. And I think I've always been like that. Just see where things take you. And sometimes you go straight down the path and sometimes you deviate off to the left or the right. And then you just keep going and, and hope for the best. <laughs> It's good so that's what I've always advice. done with my career. Yeah, it's, it's really good. And thank God I did because I ended up where I ended up, which was fabulous. But like you ended up in wild, wild scenarios. Like the war zone like stuff was amazing, uh, Marie, because like I never considered how they went about identifying people who died in war and like that they would, for example, get together a crack team of uh, you know forensic pathologists from around the world and basically like fly you in behind enemy lines. Like... What was that all like? I mean, it sounds again like you were very like, oh, take it as it comes. You were, I remember you saying at one point you lost your luggage and just had to borrow clothes from the other forensic pathologist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and again, you just have to accept the situation you're in. Um, no, I mean, the, the, most of the stuff with the UN was actually, it's a terrible thing to say, but it was very enjoyable because you were just doing from, you know, sort of seven o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night, you were just doing what you wanted to do, which is go in there and do postmortems and try and identify people um, who had literally disappeared off the face of the earth for years. And we were the people who were in there in a very privileged position to be able to go in and say, you know, to try and sort the mess out. Mm. And it was fabulous because, and the people I met were just wonderful, both 
working on it and the local people as well. I mean, they were just, although you couldn't, uh, I, no, they couldn't understand me and I couldn't understand them, but with nodding and, you know, gesticulations, we all understood that we were all there to do, try and do some good for the people. Um, yeah, but it, it, it really was, sometimes it was a bit harrowing. Going into, um, when we were in Sierra Leone, the, I think the, the saving grace there was that we were all on anti-malarials. So I think we were all psychotic. So we hadn't a clue what was going on. I think it was only weeks afterwards, that the realization that we had been you know, behind enemy lines and digging out bodies were thinking, oh my God, if my husband finds out, he'll kill me. I know. And like when you're describing how like they had told you like, oh, that they were just trying to keep the fighting at bay while you went into the place where these bodies were, I was like, Oh my God, I cannot ever complain about a day of work again. Like, and what uh, you mentioned your husband at that point, like you had you had kids and things like that by then. You have two kids, don't you? Yeah, yeah. No, I had the kids because I, I I had already established my career in forensic pathology before I had the kids. So the kids have never known anything different than this strange woman who's there sometimes and not there sometimes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so they, they don't know anything different, although they hadn't a clue. I mean, it's quite funny, actually, because my daughter had, was reading the book. I, I, I didn't give them it until it was finished because they, they would have killed me with their criticism. Look, <laughs> my son, who is, is he, he's the sort of the intellect in the family. <laughs> And I thought, no, I can't show him because then I would just go and sit in the corner and cry if he says anything awful to me. <laughs> um, but it was funny. And they were saying, we didn't know you did things like that. And I said, well, you can't sit down a five-year-old and say, mommy's going to Sierra Leone. You might never see her again. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll bring you back something nice if I do come back. <laughs> yeah. So I think they were more, they were quite amazed at some of the things I had done as well, because I, I didn't, I never talk about it at home because I mean, who wants to listen to tales of death and destruction? More people than you'd think. Quite a lot of people. Yeah. Cause the, the book is completely riveting. Like that's the thing that really got across to me was like how no day in your entire career has ever been like another pretty much you know in that like every call like you talk in one point in the book about how you feel whenever a phone rings like just this kind of instant high alert of like right where am I going now what am I about to walk into and like uh some of that kind of walking into the crime scene stuff that you describe in the book was just really harrowing but there's one particular thing that I'm like, I have this like intense curiosity about and there's never been anyone, I've never been directly speaking to someone that can actually clear this up for me. What does a de decomposing body smell like? I just knew that was coming. I knew it was going to be something <laughs> to so disgusting. I need to know. Like, because you were talking about how the smell clings and how you and your friend went on your lunch break to get lunch in a supermarket. And you noticed people noticing the smell in the queue in front of you and suddenly went, oh, that's me. <laughs> I died. Like, I, I need I need to know. Can you in any way describe it? It is. Uh, it's awful. I mean, nothing prepares you for it when you walk the, when you walk in the door for the first time to smell it. It just assaults you. I mean, it's it's like a physical presence. Um, it really is amazing. I mean, if you've been, we've all been in lockdown, and the weather was quite good. And you know, when you get to, you know, you're waiting for the bin man to come, and you're you're putting your last bit of rubbish, and you open up the bin, and you get, and you go, oh, and you gag. 
think of that and it's about a hundred times worse oh, oh god so you never get used to it well you get you you <laughs> it's always there but you find ways of coping with it so i know when i go into a place like that don't breathe through your nose breathe through your mouth and then eventually you you know the <laughs> your senses get used to it and then before you know it you're breathing normally and you don't notice it and that's the danger because you don't notice it and it just and it just I, you know where you get that advert for febreze and they're saying you know and gets rid of all odors mm, doesn't get rid of that odor <laughs> i've tried it believe me it doesn't there's an a product uh, a future potential product uh dr cassidy death be gone yeah decay uh, away decay away <laughs> the marketing really looks after itself <laughs> it? i like you seem really like stoic when you're confronted with these like horrific scenes and like I don't know if you got to the bit yet in the book where um you've you've just walked into this a flat and like there's a really decomposed body and there's a line in the book that's something like the maggots had taken over the body oh I'm gonna have nightmares (laughs) about just that line the way you put it was just so stark and so terrifying I love the way you're just sitting there laughing away as well. Well, do I guess you you'd have to get take sick. Like, yeah. yeah, how do you handle it? Well, it's one of those things that you either can handle it or you can't, and it's from day one. And and that was the thing when I the, my first day in forensic pathology, um, when I walked through the door, I I was I was waiting to just sort of turn and and run down the street and head back to the hospital and say please take me back um i didn't i didn't think that i would be able to stand there and because i'm I, in other respects i'm quite squeamish i hate violence i can't watch anything violent on the television or, or films mm-hmm. i'm the one that's going oh, oh my god that's awful but once people are dead it seems it's different you know, because you're not seeing the physical pain, you're not seeing them reacting to things. You're just left with what's left, basically. And so I knew from the first day after I'd seen the things that I'd seen that first day, I thought, I think I can cope with this. And my colleague who came along the day after, because I went back and went, you won't believe this, this is fantastic. This is what I was meant to do, this is wonderful. And of course, I always paint a great picture of everything. And they, they were all going, oh, that's so, oh, gosh, we'll come along too. And they just literally got to the door, opened into the mortuary and went, oh, Christ, no, I couldn't do that for the rest of my life. And so you have to have that kind of a personality that you can go in there and do it. Because otherwise, you're no use to anybody if you're sort of snibbling in a corner saying, oh my God, this is awful. Look at that poor person. You just have to just get on with it. I'm sure you've had a lot of students who, who it, that just has happened to them. And that was the one day was their last day and off they went. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I always say to them because a lot of them come and they've, they've watched CSI and they think this is going to be so exciting and they're going to be dashing across town and they're going to be doing all of these things. And, you know, by the end of the day, we'll have solved the, the crime and everything will be rosy. And, and I'm going, no, it's not like that. And I always say to them, look, if you don't like it, just tell me. I said, I don't have anything to give you but my time. And I will give you all of my time and all of my expertise. I'll tell you everything I know if you're interested. But if you're not interested, don't don't waste my time and I won't waste your time. And so you, you do get some students who just come in and then the, you can see them, you know, 
edging their way back out the door and I just go, look, just go back and tell them that it wasn't for you. I said, it's no reflection on you because there's very few people who do this and it's only odd people like myself who do do it. Is there like a personality type that you found when you meet other pathologists? And oh yes, we're as mad as a, a bag of frogs, yeah. really. I'd say humour has to be the common threat. I mean... Exactly, yeah. exactly. And we're all very, very strange. You know, we are, as, I say, <laughs> as I keep saying, when you walk into a meeting of forensic pathologists, you would just wonder, you know, it's like something out of a, you know, an alien planet or something, you know, because we have, you know, we have, you know, very genteel people but we have goths, we have all sorts of people, you know, all, all the people, I always think of us as the, the misfits in medicine. You know, we've actually found our own little place where we all feel happy and we all fit and we're all comfortable there. And not everybody is. And that's why, because people always say to me, oh, wasn't it strange being a woman? I went, no, that wasn't the issue coming into forensic pathologies, whether you're a woman. It was whether you were another misfit that was going to fit in. And I was the misfit that fitted in. It didn't matter if I was female, male or whatever. Um, and it's just that we are just people who seem to like the same things, you know. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like ultimately incredibly satisfying. Like from my perspective, you're kind of eliminating the human because it's a dead person. You're not dealing with the, you know, the feeling side. So I guess you can really get down to it. You can just figure start. it out. Yeah, it's just yeah, a exactly. problem to solve. Really. Well, I guess, is that how it feels to you? Yeah, and that's what it is. It's a problem to solve. I mean, we're the pro problem solving specialty in medicine. And we don't, we don't have the, the patient butting in with a, but, but I've also got, you know, shush, shush, shush. Um, ours, ours doesn't interrupt us, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about what happened. Um, and so the, from that side, you can detach yourself from it because you're not emotionally invested in them. When it becomes hard is when you meet the families yes. because obviously they're very, you know, I mean, they, they, they this is somebody very dear to them that's died. They're distraught. And it's then when you see the impact of the death on other people, then you suddenly go, oh, that, you know, that is very sad. You know, we're not, we're not completely hard hearted. Uh, but when we're, do, when we're there and in the moment, then that's, that's, you know, my job's not to mourn. My yeah. job is to get to the bottom of this, find out you know, how they died and is there anything else I can tell the guardie? And that's basically all I have to do. And is your your relationship with the guards is paramount. And I'm sure there's been times, like, what is that rub like? I mean, it, it, is, do they have the utmost respect for, like, they, you're kind of, they you're, yeah. And, and to be fair, uh, uh, I've never had any problems and they, they get to trust you. Because I think when I when I came over at first, I came over in '98, and it was Jack Harbison was the big figure, and so everything I, for a long time it was, but Professor Harbison does it this way, and Professor Harbison, and I used to say, well, Professor Harbison's not here today, let's do it Mary Cassidy's way today. They'd go oh, okay, but after a while they began to, you know, because they would say, but he takes, you know, sort of eight hours to do it, and I would go, right, well. I can't think of anything else I can possibly do. But if you want to sit down here for another four hours and contemplate, well, fine. Or else you can all go to the pub for a drink. They would go, 
yeah, that sounds like a better idea. And I said, you know, so I got them on side that, you know, there are different ways of doing things. And it got to the stage where they then became quite comfortable at calling me in for things that they wouldn't normally call Jack in because Jack, Jack would just go, that's nothing to do with me. I, that's, is, is that a murder or not? And they'd go, well, we're not sure. Well, it, when you've made up your mind, come back to me. And I would just go, Let, okay, I'll have a look. Let's let me in, and and I'll I'll have I'll come back to you and say what what I think it is, and it, because of that I, I always make work for myself. I don't know why I do it, but I do. And then it, so they were asking me to come in to cases where normally they wouldn't have bothered asking us, and then they became much much more comfortable in saying, well let's just run it past the wee blonde one. You know she might she might have some ideas, <laughs> and. So over the years, I built up great relationships with the Gardaí and, you know, I never had any trouble with any of them at all. And I hope they didn't have any trouble with me. <laughs> and like, I never realised, um, this was my ignorance, that you went to the crime scene and then did the post-mortem. Like that you would go and see um, the, the circumstances. The, the circumstances. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's loads of like really fascinating crime scenes described in the book but the one that like really struck me was the one in the locked cabin in the submarine <laughs> could you I love the way you're laughing away <laughs> and this locked cabin in the submarine was drenched in blood like and there was a man inside but this was just the wildest thing I've ever heard and can you tell me, like, what was the kind of, did you get the call? And you were like, okay, hang on, wait, it's at sea or? No, because I, I, I mean, when the guards phoned me about that, there was the local guards in Donegal and they were busy. And I was thinking, really, you really think somebody climbed in a porthole in the middle of, or under the sea, killed this man, climbed back out and left. <laughs> and I was going, and I thought, no, I'll just go up and I'll sort it out when I get there. <laughs> <laughs> so I just said, look, take plenty of photographs. I don't need to go into the submarine. I've no intention to get on the submarine at the moment. Just take plenty of photographs, get them out of there. <laughs> now that you've broken down the door to get into them and we'll sort it out in the mortuary. And normally, sometimes on reflection, people panic, you know, when, when they're faced with something, which really is, I mean, <laughs> Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. I'm sure Donegal is a lovely place. I love Donegal. My mother's family came from Donegal. Very fond of Donegal. But it's not normal to see somebody in, you know, in a, a cabin, in a submarine, awash with blood. I mean, that's not, that's not a normal day-to-day -day occurrence. So you can understand why people panic and suddenly start to think, oh my God, what am I dealing with? Instead yeah. of, and I would say, you know, by the time, the time I get there, people have calmed down and then they're sort of standing there thinking, thinking, oh, I maybe look a bit stupid now when I think about it. <laughs> maybe I should have just waited before I gave her a ring. But I always say, look, never apologize for calling me out. But be aware if you haven't called me out and something goes wrong and then you have to call me out at a later time. I said, that's when I will go ballistic. I'm more than happy to come up and just go, look, this is fine. No panic, boys. It's okay. There's, a, there's an explanation for this. But if they don't call me out and then they have to call me out after somebody else has started, then I, that, that, was, that was the only time <laughs> I used to get annoyed. And I used to say, so don't, don't, don't ever apologize for calling me out as long as you're not calling me out as the second person that you've called out. Exactly. <laughs> I think I'd be really overcautious guard. I think, yeah. <laughs> and I just, oh my God, 
Your I, Scottishness. I need to Marie Cassidy to just hold my hand here for a bit. Any this. Scottish person going ballistic has a certain sort of um, <laughs> innate terror. Yes. <laughs> I'd say that's helped you through the years. <laughs> Leveraging your Scottishness against the Irish. You're just. You're better at going ballistic than us, I'd say. <laughs> I always say to them, as long as I'm smiling, everything's fine. And I stop smiling, boys, there's a problem. And they all go, right. <laughs> keep her smiling, keep her smiling. I love as well your take on the uh, the Irish attitude to death and funerals and stuff like that. Like, I don't, obviously, grew up here, never realised that it was in any way, like, a bit of a national preoccupation with going to funerals and... Like getting the free sandwiches. Yeah, and stuff like everybody that. must attend. Yeah, you needn't have met the dead person. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> like anyone who knows the dead person is probably trying to get out of the funeral usually. Exactly. <laughs> and so, like, uh, what's kind of uh, is? I suppose there's some. There is some really disturbing things in the book. Like, I don't want to like. I mean, I don't want to like. I don't know. Our listeners, for example, would probably be like. Reading right through it, it looking yeah, yeah. for the disturbing stuff. And there is really disturbing stuff. Is there has there ever been any case that like you just couldn't shake? No, to be to be honest, I mean um I know people think that, you know, there should be things that, you know, you go home and you're thinking, Oh my god, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And always people I mean, as I say in the book, um it's usually, you know, boys in transition you that go what's the worst thing you've ever seen what's the goriest thing you've ever seen you think oh god what's going to grow up to be a psychopath but never mind that's his mammy's problem uh, <laughs> but you i mean everything just gets logged away you know as i say i've got a head full of the most awful things um and you know you just have to just sort of put that to one side of your brain and you just keep it there it's there and it's there you can delve in and out and if you've got come up you think oh I've had something like that you know sort of about four or five years ago there was something that was similar and you go back in and you go through your little filing cabinet and you bring that one out again and you go hmm yeah but you know there's nothing that I you know I've lost sleep over as I say only time I lose sleep is when I'm there's something that I, I you know that I, that I haven't got a handle on yet and I'm, you know, and I do have my eureka moments at two o'clock in the morning when I go, oh, that's what I need to do. I need to go back in tomorrow. And then I'm first thing in the morning, I'm in there going, right, get it back out again. I need to look at this again because I think this is what this is what it might be. But it's not because I'm troubled by it. Not at all. You're just trying to work out the problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's that sounds logical. That's, I guess the thing is you couldn't do you couldn't do your job if, if you were taking things home, staying up at night, worrying. There's just no possible way you could you could have this as a career if you were taking it on in that respect. So I guess no. you'd have to file it away. You do. And I think I mean I, I I suppose there comes a time and I probably I maybe get out in time when you get to the case that just sort of tips you over the edge. And I've seen it in a couple of people and um when I was when I was asked to, if I wanted to, to write um, my memoir, um, I'd looked at some of the recent ones that, and, and I know, because forensic pathology is a small community, there's not that many of us, so we all know one another. And I'd, I'd picked up one, uh, uh, Dick Shepherd, and I know Dick, and Dick actually used to come over to Ireland and cover for me when I went on holiday. Um, and I picked his up, and he's busy saying, you know, he's uh, suffering from post-traumatic, and I'm going, Dick is suffering from <laughs> the most unlikely candidate. Um, 
And I thought, oh, maybe it com there comes a time when the next one is just, you know, the final straw. You know, that's the that's the one that you just can't take anymore. And luckily, I got out before that ever happened. And it might never have happened, but and uh, you know, don't know the next crime scene I went into, I might just have fallen apart and just, you know. <laughs> crumpled on the floor and sobbing, going, take me out of this, I can't take it anymore. But um, it's, never, it's never happened and it's not going to happen now. No. You're safe. You're safe. You're safe. You got <laughs> out alive. I must say, do you ever, like, with everything you've seen, um, do you have a sense now when you meet people or see, like, even, like, I can picture, like, you know, just sitting on the bus or something, being surrounded by other people and being like, oh, yeah. you're all animals. I know what humans are capable of. Like, does it make you kind of... Or is that me taking it to a weird place? But like... <laughs> As I say, there's more good people in the world than bad people. There's very few bad people. When you think about, look at the number of murders that are in Ireland in a year, you know, it ranges, it's, the, it's a small number, but it ranges between 50 and 70 a year. Mm. Look at the population. So there's, you know, 50 people killed by 50 people. Mm. You know, so that's 50 people out of the whole population. And most of them are quite are good people who just got themselves into a bad situation. You know, they didn't say, say, all right, Saturday night, I'm going out and I think I'll kill a couple of people. No, they went out, had a few pints with the, with the lads. Something happened, a fight broke out. And before they knew it, you know, somebody was dead. Mm. And, you know, so... There are a few, and I think I mentioned them in the book, you know, people who is premeditated. I mean, and that's usually when you're getting rid of bumping off a family member, you have to put a lot of thought into it. You have to make, you know, you have to, to do your research. But the majority of cases just happen, you know, and it's not, I mean, there are a few evil people about, but thankfully, they, even, in the, even in the murder cases, they are few and far between, you know, and... and and when you come across them, then you would worry about it. But um, as I say, most most times, you ever sit in court and you watch a trial, watch the, the guy who's accused of the murder. He's stunned half the time. A lot of the time they have to put on a bit of bravado, you know, oh, yeah, I'm the hard man. That, that boy will be going back to his cell and sobbing his eyes out and saying, I wish my mammy was here to help me out of this hole. Um, and it's it's just, you know, so... Don't worry about bad people. There's no murderers <laughs> on the bus. And Marie, have you ever worked on a case that was unsolved? Well, there's lots of unsolved murders, but you, the, the, from the point of view of the pathologist, the ones that you know you, you do worry about are the ones where you can't give an answer, where at the end of the post-mortem, the end after you've done everything you possibly can think of, every test you can possibly think of, you still haven't got to the bottom of what happened to the person, how they died. And nowadays it's easier because science and medicine have moved on a pace. And we know that there's all these conditions that can cause, particularly cardiac conditions, which we never knew about in the, the good old days when I first started out. And you know, you're, you're going into families and saying, I don't know why your 22 year old son just dropped dead. You know, um, because people, particularly with young people, people when they hear, oh, Jimmy Murphy was found dead. They all go, drugs, drugs. You know it's drugs. Mm. Definitely going to be drugs. And to a certain extent, everybody's going, probably will be drugs. But then you come back and there's no drugs. There's no nothing. Everything seems normal and healthy. And in those days, and, and early on in my first part of my career, you'd be going back to the family and going, well, I'm not 
don't know what happened. He might have had a, a heart attack, but, you know, and they're going, he's 22. I know it could have had a seizure and it must have been his first, he's never, he's never had fits before. But sometimes your first one can be a lot. In other words, we haven't a bloody clue and we're just trying to sort of mollify you. But nowadays we actually do know that there are conditions that we can't see just by lifting up a heart and going, yeah, that looks a bit dodgy. Um, so now the good thing about that is that we can say to families, this, is, this could be a, 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 no, an undiagnosed cardiac condition. But very importantly, if it is, all of the family need to be checked out yeah. because you don't want that to happen again. And in fact, from some families, that gives them a kind of a mission. You know, we've got a terrible death to deal with, but as a family, we're going to pull together and we're going to make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so from that point of view, that, that we, we can now give people some kind of a guidance as to what happened. But those are the ones that you always feel as a, as a pathologist, you know, oh, uh, you know, could I have done better? Is there anything else I could think of to do? You know, but um, that's, that's the only time that, from a pathologist's point of view, but from the death investigation point of view, as I say, I'm only part of the team, so I'm only telling you what I think the cause of death is. All of the other information has to come from all the other sources, and sometimes there just isn't other information that's there. Well, that's good. I mean, that's funny, because you're sort of crossing over in potent into potentially saving lives from your position there, which is I mean, an amazing thing to, to be able to pass on, and that information to the family is you know, incredible. So that's, I'm sure it doesn't happen often, but when it does, that's a good day. Yeah, because we had a case with a girl, a young um, Australian girl um, was found dead in Dublin just a few years back. And uh, I had thought, uh, no, nothing much to find, but her heart was possibly on the larger side of normal. And I said to the coroner, do you know anything about the family history? And he said, well, I'll find out, but the family's all back in Australia. And uh, I said, well, look, I think we need to make sure that this information gets to the family just in case there is something. And they got back to the family and they spoke to the, the father. And he'd said, well, I've been having bother with my heart and I've had all these tests and they keep telling me that it's okay. But because of his age, they were thinking along the lines of a normal heart condition for a, for a, a middle-aged elderly man and hadn't really thought about the, some of these genetic things. And as soon as we relayed this information to him, he went way back to his, his, his GP and he got, you know, he was referred on and they found out that there was some underlying genetic condition in this family and all of the family were then tested for it. And so they were so grateful that this had been picked up. And it was just because I had said to Brian Farrell, the co he was the coroner at that point, um, look, we need to do this. I was trying to, I was saving my own skin in a way because it was not long before that, that a pathologist had actually been sued by a family because he hadn't given them that advice. He just said, I don't know what it is and just left it at that instead of saying, it could be something like this. So just to be on the safe side, get checked out. He was sued. Wow. But I don't want to be sued. No, but you also <laughs> no cared deeply about <laughs> saving others. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, that's that what kind of drew you into it initially like because it is a strange career when I was younger actually I used to I wanted to I think be a pathologist when I was like really really young 
but I didn't have the language for it. So I used to tell my parents I wanted to cut up dead people to see how they died. But it was to see how they died to make other people better. Was that a similar or was I just a weird child? You were just a weird child, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, I always, I mean, I, as I say, I, that's not my, that was never my intention. And I never came into doing medicine to, to do that. I never came into medicine to, to, to do whatever I did. Um, but I think when you, if you're working in the hospital situation, if you're a hospital pathologist, that is what you're doing. That's, that's the basis of doing the postmortems in, in those cases, because you're trying to see, do these drugs work? You know, the person who has breast cancer that we thought was cancer free has now died very suddenly. Did the, the cancer come back? What, what did we miss? What did we be giving the wrong treatment? What's, why is this treatment not working? So they're, so they're looking at the postmortem for a, for a very different viewpoint and they are looking for um, information that might help because every time we do a, the, um, a postmortem is done that the information that comes out of it is filed away but that can then be used for statistical purposes how many people are dying from heart conditions mm -hmm. therefore you know that's what we should be spending our money on the public money should be going into finding out how we stop people dying from heart conditions and so it, it does influence and so they those postmortems do heavily influence the living, whereas the ones that I do um, really, it's got, nothing, it's got nothing to do with the living from that point of view. This is something that's happened suddenly and unexpectedly. And why? And, and it's as simple as that. So I'm not trying to save the world one body at a time. <laughs> I'm just trying to get an answer from one body at a time. It's fascinating. Brilliant. What a career, uh, Dr. Gast. I mean, that that is an incredible career you've had to date. And congratulations on the book. Yeah. And thank you so much for writing it for all the creeps like us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's absolutely fascinating and totally like sheds light on this kind of totally hidden world. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much. And thanks for chatting to us. Great feedback from our solid show last week. We finished that recording. I was like, great show. And uh, lots of people agreed. <laughs> a couple of people didn't. <laughs> Fuck them. I need, I need to talk about a great show. Fuck you guys. Um, uh, you know, in terms of the content you're consuming, right? Mm. At the moment in your life. So str I'm still unboxing turtles over here. Are you? <laughs> well, yeah, I've gone down. A, I've basically started unfollowing people and only following um, bed linen accounts, which is very soothing. <laughs> oh. That's very brilliant. soothing has anyone just, else getting served and then all your ads are maker just, and son's couches I really want one I've been on the you site both, I've my customized friend. my own I've spoken to people how, how I wanted my 10,000 pounds like 8,000 pounds yeah mm -hmm. but they they tell me they're the comfiest couches in the world and I believe it's them have you videos. seen their YouTube yes I've been with everywhere with the house tour oh yeah, my the god house tour that's right yeah I was on that yesterday I need this link to be shared in I don't our know WhatsApp group. if you needed it's just another layer of like luxury that is just out of reach yeah they're really expensive but there's luxury but they look that's within so reach nice no these like we're not allowed to have any of that shit I anymore so some poor person made it and that is us being terrible by buying it oh. no no so you can't afford any, anything you can afford you are not allowed to own way to ruin my incredibly natural plug of 
D8 Candle Company. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, these are gorgeous. Yeah, no, no. Friend of the pod. I, but, but they're out of stock. Like, I'm, No, I'm, they're in stock now. Are they back in stock? Well, by the I time this on... goes out, they're probably out of stock, but they're in stock now. Really? Because I'm Rich went, Lady. I'm going to literally want. buy one sitting. I have Rich Ladies, but I want, um, I want the West. The West is beautiful. I have it up here. You can Here's smell it. Give a sniff it. of the Rich Ladies again. Um, they're the, candles. The D8 candles. Candle Company is handmade. Oh, this one's all burnt out, so you can't smell it. Uh, what else have we got going on? Trump has COVID or no, he doesn't. Well, Trump may or may not have COVID, but now everyone's talking about Trump having COVID. So no one's talking about Trump's taxes or the fact that Trump told alt-right group, the Proud Boys, to stand back and stand by. Stand by. Is that not the most amazingly bad thing that's ever happened? Ever. Uh, sorry, a lot of bad things have happened, but that has to be up there. Like, that is shockingly bad. He just keeps jumping his own shark. Like, do you know what I mean? He's on a jump shark scale that's way out there. Has he desensitized the world now to these genuine problems that now we're like, well, can't get any fucking worse. What's the point in trying anything? Like, I feel if Jen, like, Seb now has abandoned saying good morning in favor of just a little Trump date. Trump date. Um, So, like, you know, whatever, when the news came through in the week, like, he, you know, woke me up with, you know, Trump's got COVID. And then this morning, Trump's in hospital. And if he woke me up tomorrow and was like, Trump blew himself during a press conference, <laughs> mm. I'd be like, with his tiny sh- little hands, standard. On his tiny little thing. He just got himself. You know, his little yeah. pursed lips. He managed to purse them Snarched. all the way to the helmet of his penis right in front of the world media. And I just would have been like, I just would be like, yeah, okay, because that's where we're at. Mm. So. <sighs> It's just one of those oh, things. It's just bleak as hell. But like why, why, why I asked you about what content you're consuming is because I was interested in like, have people got, do people need, like I'm finding what I need is a worse reality than our own. Mm-hmm. So I'm so bet in to the misery, just anything to try and Are out you? misery life. What an interesting, uh, that's so, so a bad I, idea do you I'm think going so? to suggest. I love, well I often find this, it's like why um, at Christmas I always do my horror, my annual horror movie marathon at Christmas time yes. because I need texture. A balance. I need uh, light and shade and dark and yeah. light and shade and contrast. Yeah. So, so I've just, have you guys ever watched The Leftovers? It's an old show. No. From a few years ago. Um, it's got like serious 2020 vibes. It was a HBO show and it's about the first episode in the opening scene. Basically, 2% of the world's population just disappeared. And the show is all about the leftovers, the people who really stuck. And what level and what what made them be left? We don't know anything yet. But like the level of misery, I'm going to say, is just about right. Okay, perfect. for my purposes. What have I been watching? Just uh, because of, because the, the algorithm thinks I'm a transition year uh, <laughs> male person. Uh, I'm just getting the Joe Rogan clips constantly. But uh, the first we feed, uh, you know, the Hot Wings Challenge, that guy, that amazing, it's a great series uh, of just Where he interviews people and they have they to go hot hotter, wings. hotter, hotter. That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there is some fucking cracking episodes of that. So the Shia LaBeouf one, you're going to oh, yeah. think to yourself, this guy's a knob. This I is going to be terrible. About him, I'm excited to he, know more. No, I loved it. He was very charming, and uh, yeah, no, no, he, that was a great episode. So, I, that, and that's what I'm ingesting—the opposite of what you're doing. Sis. I know. I think there's just safety in that bullshit bravado. There's kind of a just a predictability <clears throat> in the jokes and the 
there's sort of a you know it's very pre-covid times mm, well yeah i think do you know the way you were talking about how your youtube doesn't know you at all yeah and i think i'm constantly confusing my youtube as well because i'm only veering between like harrowing each you know and serial killer confessions and britain's got and talent and very talented children yeah children you need to combine the two and get the killer children i've, I've gone down that youtube rabbit hole and that oh, did was you come across dream. mary <gasps> yes. yeah she's brilliant yeah that well, is a sorry classic. that's a classic but again i like it was it ever proven what what century was that even mary bell yeah oh it was like the 20s i thought it was like the 50s i think it's earlier and did she kill other children um, she killed two young boys. Mm. Yeah, just to it see was what in it this, felt it was like. in the sixties. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, what other killer children do we know? Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it's like a weird. Never mind. What are the killer children? We won't get into it. We no. have my favorite M- M- Mini. Oh, Mini. Oh, Mini. Brilliant. I love him, but he I, never killed anyone. I know, but just he tried. He tried arson. to kill his father. Kind of. But anyway, I'm that's going that. To curl up. And enjoy some musical theatre on YouTube, followed swiftly by some, you know, harrowing death stories. It's only a matter of time before they turn one of the true crime stories into a musical. I feel like that's the next stage of commodifying true crime. We could come up with some, we could come up with some jingles. We should do a, a creep dive stage performance. I really want this very badly. There's yeah. a great yeah. story you told it, this time last year where we were live somewhere and it was the somebody getting possessed and killing his family. I think that would work. Oh worked. my God, Jesus, Michael. Jesus, Michael. Yes. That would work brilliantly as a musical. I loved that yeah. one. Yeah, that would be good. The thing is like, my writing musicals, very hard. <laughs> yes, no doubt. Because you have to write a song. It's like when you wrote a play within a book. And you're I like, know. fucking idiot. I no, have to write a whole play. I'm currently writing a musical you've, within you've a book. Again. Like a fucking you've idiot. And I, I needed the, um, I needed a fictional Eurovision song contest title. Okay. And Esther Omar Donahue just nailed, nailed it. it. What is it? Stumble on the promise of a dream. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Can they perfect? all be in dungarees? Oh, so good. Uh, what was I going to... Okay, so here we have the interview, but now we're talking and now we should tease the hive because our listeners will have heard the interview and now they're <laughs> listening to us talk and now they're wanting more juice from us, but we're not telling any stories until we hit the hive. So come to the hive. Well done. Oh, I so love what we've just done. I've got, blue ball. I've got a, a great historical... Thank you for the creep that sent this to me about... Really, it's the history of the garden gnome. Oh, class. And it's weirder than you might think. Oh, class. Very. Okay, I hold on. So now we're in that you've confused us all. Oh, you're no, still teasing, teasing the hive. I am a teasing mode right. now. Here I, I am. I just thought you'd gone into the hive as no. you're making the cutting of this episode. <laughs> Super complicated. No, I, can't pe- I keep pulling. And then at the end of I it all, like just knowing. stop there. Just get me. Hello and welcome back to the Creep Dive. <laughs> use that for here. Use this for the end. Bye, guys. <laughs> Subscribe to us on Patreon. Oh, you're already in the Patreon. Come on in. Well done. <laughs> you're our faves. I see. Bing, bang, bosh. Podcast. Podcast. Uh, <laughs> I'm Jen O-D-W-I-E-R and you're listening to The Grief Time. <laughs> That's so good. Uh, what I, I've what got, do you have for the hive? I've got um, some whimsy. Love, I've mine's heavy on whimsy. whimsy. 
Um, I've got uh, oh my my BuzzFeed headline is no one will believe you. Very oh. good, very um, good. Which is the catchphrase of the star of my uh, story. Okay, famous man. Oh, is it ringing any bells? I'm hearing no one will believe you, and I'm thinking rape, but okay. I'm in the wrong area. <laughs> uh, go, go back to whimsy. Whimsy. Uh, ah, no one will believe you. Okay, <laughs> said with a said in a kind of whistle, like a, ha, like a little kind of titter tone, like a funny Twitter. American actor man leprechaun. Interesting, Cass. Um, I have a. I have, I'm going to read you a story from um this woman that I've come across called Jean Campbell, who is exactly the kind of armchair sleuth you would want your armchair sleuth to be. She has a medium blog and she writes true crime stories, not fictional stories, real stories all the time. And this is Jean. So I'm going to give you a lowdown on some of her, the crimes that okay. she has Looking unearthed. Right. She's exactly what you would want. Grey haired lady what sitting she looks on a like leather is couch. Emma Thompson. Yeah. Vibes. No? I would say Emma would be like an eight. <laughs> Are you objectifying Emma? I am. Um, so she's like a Michelle McNamara. She's like she's just like a creep at home on her own, just writing her blog on all these true crimes. And one that I'm going to focus on today is called "A Small Town Mystery Drowns in Too Many Clues." Ooh, oh, and this mm. one of hers. It's one of hers. That she's she's comp- she compiles all the cases and gives you all the the information. Jeez. She and needs a podcast. She does. She needs this podcast. She needs, <laughs> or we could just read her stories. Right. Uh, thanks, Cass. Thank you for listening. Big thanks to Dr. Marie Cassidy for zooming on in and telling us uh, just the tip of gore when we. I want more, but it's in the book. So read her book. Beyond the Tape, which is out now, and it is class. Uh, see you in the hive. Bye. Bye. Welcome to the hive. <laughs> <laughs> Did I leave a pause? you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.